David wanted the people of God to see that God supernaturally saves. And he wanted the nations to know who God was because God alone is glorious. You're listening to David, a sermon series preached at Shoreline Church. For more audio or theological content, please visit thisisshoreline.com. One of the challenges of the text that we are studying uh, this morning is its familiarity. We're going to be studying the story of David and Goliath that we just read. And because it's so familiar, I wonder if we really understand the purpose of the text in 1 Samuel 17. If we really understand the deeper meaning or if we've always understood it in a very me-centered, shallow approach. And so my goal today is actually to ruin the story of David and Goliath for you. In other words, I want to ruin the way we've maybe perceived it since we've been in Sunday school. And to do that, I want to open our sermon today reading a portion of an article that was written by a person by the name of Chad Bird. And here's what he says. I don't have all of it on the screen, but I want to, um, I'll reference it, CJ, so I'll point it out when we get to that part. So here's what he says. He says, ever since its appearance in the late 1700s, Sunday school has played a key role in teaching boys and girls how to read the Bible like they're not Christians. <laughs> here's what he says. When little Johnny is taught the story of Noah's Ark, he learns three truths from it. And we'll put this on the screen. The three truths are, number one, Noah was good and God loved him. Number two, Noah was obedient and God saved him. Number three, if Johnny is good and obedient, then God will love and save him too. He goes on and he says, when young Teresa is taught the story of Daniel in the lion's den, she learns these three things. Number one, Daniel was faithful even when bad men were against him. Number two, God rescued Daniel because Daniel was faithful to God. Number three, if Teresa is faithful, God will rescue her from bad people too. He says this in his article, all narratives are easily kidnapped and pressed into service by our self-absorbed egos. Huh. Give us a story and ask us which character we identify with the most and we will always choose the hero or the heroine. We see ourselves in them. They embody our desires for victory, success, and approval. And he says, Bible stories are no different. And then he says this, take the account of David and Goliath. If you do a Google search on this story, you'll find hundreds of Sunday school lessons about the five smooth stones that you can use to battle giants in your own life. And I'll just, for an aside, I've heard this before, with faith and courage and hope and trust and Chick-fil-A breakfast, we too can take down the giants in our life. Well, here's what he said. Each lesson is a variation on the same threefold theme. Here it is. Number one, David chose five smooth stones when he faced Goliath. Number two, God has given you five smooth stones to face giants in your own life. Number three, if you use these stones, you too will be victorious. He says this, notice there's almost always one thing missing from lessons such as these, Jesus. The one that the Bible is all about, the center of the Old Testament, the author and perfecter of our salvation. And who has taken the place of Jesus? He says, we have. Our faithfulness, our obedience, 
our battles, our weapons, our victories. Sunday school has become the place for self-affirmation, self-actualization, and self-esteem. As we already do this in daily life, so have we done in our reading of the Bible. We've placed ourselves at the center and we've put Christ at the periphery. Wow. So true. As we open up 1 Samuel today, we're continuing our survey of 1 and 2 Samuel through the life of David, through the lens of Christ. And we've already seen that the mess Saul got himself into. We've already seen that. And the fact that God raised up David to be the eventual new king because David was a man after God's own heart. Now, we've already seen this, but we've seen Saul conscript David into his service to be a musician and to be the king's armor bearer. And this morning, we're going to be looking at, of course, this story that we know as David versus the giant Goliath. And in these 58 verses that we're going to unpack, don't worry, we'll be able to do it, uh, we're going to be understanding that the actual combat between the two is incredibly brief. Did you notice that? The entire time that we're doing the scripture reading, we're building up, building up, building up, and then we actually come to the actual fight, and it's a very brief moment. It's kind of like a prize fight against Mike Tyson. Remember that? Where you run out of the room really quick to use the restroom or to grab some popcorn, and you came back and it's over. Anybody remember that? Um, maybe to uh, maybe a more recent example, this chapter is like a UFC-McGregor duel that you're anticipating all week, and then you actually turn it on, and when you sneeze, you miss the entire thing because it's over in the first round, actually in the first few seconds. So that's what happens here. And so let's read this chapter rightly, and here's what I want you to do. Let's not look at ourselves as David, okay? In this chapter, we learn about a foe who absolutely defies the glory of God, and an unlikely savior who comes in humility and in one blow fells the giant. And so we're going to see the gospel in this story today. And then later we're going to take communion together as a church. So if you're not a follower of Christ, later when we take the communion, you're going to uh, please abstain from that. Uh, if you're watching live on Facebook, welcome. You can't take communion, but you can certainly partake with us in the study of scripture. So we welcome you. Um, and Here's how we're going to outline the uh, sermon today on the screen. Uh, four things that we're going to see. First, we're going to see in verses 1 through 11 an undefeatable enemy. And we're going to see how undefeatable Goliath is. Number two, we're going to see that the infantry is unprepared in verses 12 through 30. They're an unprepared infantry. We're going to see an unexpected challenger in David, verses 31 through 40. And then in verses 41 through the end, 58, we'll see an unforeseen victory. So let's look at that first section, an undefeatable enemy. And we're actually going to start in verse 4. Look at verse 4 with me. 1 Samuel 17, and there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named, say it out loud with me, Goliath. So I need your participation this morning because, you know, the, the groundhog didn't see a shadow. So we're going to have spring. That's a good thing. But let's try this again. His champion's name was? All right, good. Uh, and so notice with me that Goliath is a Philistine. Now, why is that important? Back in chapters 13 and 14, Saul's heroic son, Jonathan, has started to defeat the Philistines. He's done this heroic act. They're starting to win. But in the middle of the fighting, King Saul makes a foolish vow and says, hey, everyone in our camp is not to eat any food. And so right in the middle of the battle, the Israelite men are now unable to eat anything without fear of death. And so before they can defeat the Philistines completely, they now have to have this, this compulsory fast 
which loses some of their steam and their stamina, and the Philistines get away. It says that in 1 Samuel 14, 46, then Saul went up from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. So they got away. They could have had an utter victory. They get away. So that means that Goliath is Saul's fault. The king was unwilling to completely follow through, and thus this little bit of unfinished business is going to come back to bite him. Well, more than bite him, it's going to come back to threaten to kill he and the rest of the Israelites. The Philistines, if you see their mention often throughout this chapter, the Philistines were a people group who were descendants of Ham, one of the three sons of Noah. And they lived in the southwest region of Palestine. And they occupied that area and they worshipped two primary false gods. They worshipped Dagon, the fish god, and they worshipped Ashtoreth, his female counterpart, similar to the concept of the false goddess Venus. And so these Philistines were defiant enemies of God's people. Uh, They were adamant to destroy the people of God. And the Philistines have this warrior that they call their champion, whose name is Goliath. Champion means he's always the one who wins. And we see why he always wins in a moment. But his name Goliath in Hebrew, just jot this down, the name Goliath is fascinating. The name Goliath means to uncover or to strip or to expose. And essentially that's exactly what he's doing. He's he's uncovering the weakness of the Israelite army. He's stripping them of their dignity and their courage, and he's exposing them as incapable and vulnerable. So look at how the Bible describes this giant in verse 4. It says he's a Goliath, or his name is Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. Now, just in case you're here and you're into stats, uh, that's about eight and a half feet to almost nine feet, nine inches. So uh, depending on your measurement. So this is a, an incredibly tall fellow. I was going to take a picture of myself compared to a nine foot nine, maybe silhouette, uh, but I couldn't take a selfie from that distance. So I decided not to do that. Uh, but that is um, a huge man. He had armor to match, obviously, custom-made armor. Can't go to the armory and say, I'll just grab one of these uh, coats of armor that fits everyone else. I've got to do the, not even the, the double XL. I've got to go custom. And so look at verse 5. He had a helmet of bronze on his head. He was armed with a coat of mail. And the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. That's not impressive until you see how much that weighs in a minute. Verse 6, he had a bronze armor. He had bronze armor on his legs. He had a javelin of uh, bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head, just the head, weighed 600 shekels of iron. And his shield bearer went before him. So you take all of his armor, and it's estimated at somewhere between 150 and 200 pounds altogether. And so, listen, I've been to the gym here on a consistent basis, and 200 pounds is a lot of guys that I work out with. That's their max bench weight. Uh, and so, in fact, that's more than some of you actually weigh this morning. <laughs> so, so. Goliath could be wearing you, and yet this is what he's wearing, and this is what he's slinging. He's basically invincible in hand-to-hand combat. There's not a spot you could take him down with. No one would ever dare get close to this guy, but that's not the half of it. Look at the next three verses. Verse 8, he stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, 
then you shall be our servants and serve us. Verse 10, and the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. And when Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. See, there's a deeper problem here than just a fearsome giant. Goliath is not just a threat, as Micah shared earlier. He's undermining the goodness and the glory of God. He is defying the people of God. He's mocking the name of God. And he's taunting those who are called by his name. Now, we'll talk about this later in communion, but Goliath proposes what is called representative warfare. In other words, that's where two armies draw into battle against one another, and, and, and they're battling it out until one is completely defeated or one surrenders. And in representative warfare, instead of doing that, you send out your best champion versus your enemy's best champion. And the idea is that our entire army is represented in that one person, and he's going to fight against the other representative. And whoever wins, the losing side just agrees to surrender before any more blood is shed. So we're only going to lose one person on the battlefield uh, versus one contender. So no wonder in verse 11 we read that Saul specifically and all of the people, but it mentions Saul, is dismayed and greatly afraid. Remember, who would have been in Israel the best match for Goliath? Who would have been the best match? Saul. Why? Because we remember he's head and shoulders the tallest in all of Israel. And so the writer is careful to point out that Saul and all of Israel is afraid. Saul should have gone out with his armor and faced the giant. But he didn't because he's a coward. So let's look at our second section. Not just at Saul but the entire army. We look at the unprepared infantry. We pick it up in verse 12. And just to summarize this, we learn that Jesse, David's father, is pretty old. He's pretty old. He's sent his three oldest sons, Eliab, Abinadab, Shammah, to the battle. So he sends his three oldest boys. Uh, they're men at this point. And we learn that David has stopped living full-time in the palace. But he's kind of what I would call an uber shepherd, meaning he's kind of a shepherd on call. And so he leaves Saul's house to go and care for his father's sheep um, when he's needed, but then he goes back to the palace when he's needed there. And so we learn that Goliath, in the meantime, split screen, is walking out for 40 days, calling out this same invitation to have representative warfare to Israel. So that's kind of the split screen, kind of two stories that are happening. So Jesse sends David to his brothers with some food, with some apparently cheese sandwiches, and he wants to know how the battle is going. And David walks out to the battlefield, he talks to his brothers, and as he's talking to them, he suddenly looks over and he hears a man who is defiantly yelling out against God and his people. And all the soldiers start stirring and they begin to have this anxiety spread among them, even to where David is standing with his brothers. And so the soldiers begin to talk about their plight. Well, there's no way we're getting out of this, guys. Someone's going to have to fight Goliath. We're done for. But see, then David begins to speak, and it's the first time we hear from him in the Bible. And right from his first statement, we see that he is a man after God's own heart. We see his faith, we see his boldness, and we see good theology. One person noted that David injects the first theological note into this narrative. David's question is on the screen. Essentially, it's this. David is asking, doesn't having a living God make all the difference in all of this? You guys are acting as if there is no God. We have a living God on our side. Why are you acting as though you haven't considered that? 
God's name is being profaned by an uncircumcised blasphemer. And I'm not going to put up with it. Look at verse 25. He says, have you seen this man? Or this is, this is the people telling David this. Have you seen this man who's come up? Surely he's come up to defy Israel. See, their focus is in the wrong place. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by him, it's almost like he didn't hear him, well, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? In other words, I don't care what the blessings are. I want to know what's going to be done for the man. This is the focus. Get rid of this man and let's remove the reproach from Israel. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people will look at each other like, you didn't hear us? Well, uh, well, so shall it be done to the man who kills him. And they repeat themselves. Their answer is, hey, listen, you'll get rich. You're going to get the king's daughter. And your father's household is going to be forgiven of all debt. But see, that's not what David's worried about. He's not worried about what he's going to gain in it. What he's worried about is the living God's name and honor being defied by godless sinners. But notice in verse 28, even David's brothers begin to reject and mock him. Eliab begins to misjudge David's motives. He says, oh, you just came to see a battle. You know, you just want to watch bloodshed. You're just that guy on YouTube that wants to see, like, I want to see an accident. That's all you're here for, David. You're just here to see something. And he begins to jab him with cruel words as he mocks his role as a shepherd. He says, what are you doing here, David? I mean, you're so unimportant that dad basically forgot that he had you as a kid. And and I don't care what Samuel said about you, saying that you're the next king. I know what's actually happening in your corrupt heart. And so though his father had sent him to minister to his brothers, his own brothers didn't receive him. All they had was absolute contempt and rejection for David. One person said it this way. They said David had to fight three Goliaths in this chapter. Number one, the contempt of Goliath and his brother Eliab. Number two, the mind of Goliath in Saul. And number three, the actual Goliath on the battlefield. So what we have, church, we have an entire ill-equipped army facing an impossible foe who defies the glory of God with no one who will rightly represent them or save them. And that's when we come to our third idea. Look at verse 31, an unexpected challenger. David's questions begin to spread around the camp the way the anxiety of Goliath began to spread. This kind of happened virally. And eventually, word gets to the king. Look at verse 31. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul. So it gets to the king. And he sent for him. Well, who said that? Go get that guy. Verse 32. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to to fight with him. For you are but a youth. And he has been a man of war from his youth. How many times have you heard that one? Oh, you're too young. Oh, you're too old. Uh, you know what? You don't have the skill. You can't do this, right? So Saul's point here is, hey, David, you're a teenager. And however old David is, is the parallel amount of time that Goliath has been fighting. <laughs> so, hey, you're 16 years old, but this guy has been fighting and killing people for 16 years. So I'm pretty sure you're outmatched. There's not going to be a chance, kid. But see, Saul is underestimating David. Now notice verse 34, David said to Saul, your servant, he's speaking about himself, uh, I used to keep sheep for my father. 
And when a lion or a bear came and took a lamb from the flock, verse 35, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. If he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. As I was studying this this week, I thought that was kind of fascinating. He went for the bear or the lion's beard. I thought that was an interesting little side note anyway. Uh, and so that's how he'd take him down, just yank the beard. Uh, and so your servant, verse 36, has struck down both lions and bears. I love this faith. And this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion, the paw of the bear, will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. It's probably kind of like a paw, just a giant hand. And Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. Wow. Note with me the absolute confidence of David, not in David's necessarily ability, not in David's ability, but in the Lord. Notice what he does not say. Did you guys catch what he did not say? David does not say, listen, I have this incredible experience with lions and bears, so I'm able to do this. I don't know if you know my track record, but I'm good with bears. I'm, I took the beard down, okay? I know what I'm doing. I've got this. No, he doesn't say that. He doesn't say this giant is just going to be like everything else I've conquered because I've got a great kind of resume. I don't know if you've read. No, he says, the Lord is the one who's always delivered me. And it will be no different today. David's unwavering faith in the midst of a shouting giant emboldened Saul to send him out. And Saul's saying, this is the man we want to represent us. One person said this, I love this. While still in the earliest bloom of his manhood, at the head of his wild band of outlaws, he, David, shows himself sagacious, full of resource, prudent in counsel, and swift as lightning in action, frank and generous, bold and gentle, cheery in defeat, calm in peril, patient in privations, and ready to share them with his men, modest and self-restrained in victory, chivalrous to his foes, ever watchful, ever hopeful, a born leader and king of men. Wow. That's David. Well, look what Saul does, verse 38. Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head to match Goliath's bronze helmet. He clothed him with a coat of mail to match Saul's coat of mail. And David strapped his sword, much smaller, of course, than Goliath's, over his armor. And he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. So he's trying to go in vain, but he hasn't really kind of worked in this. Uh, Saul's mindset, church, is so warped here. Follow me. First of all, he's cowardly refusing to face Goliath, even though he should be the one because he's the tallest in the nation and he's the king. So if anyone represents the people, it's the king. Send the king out. He's the tallest. He's the obvious choice. But he's cowardly leaning back when he should be leaning forward. Secondly, he's willing to send a teenager out to battle against a tested warrior who will soundly beat him. Okay, listen, dads, this is like sending your, your kindergartner into the house when you hear a noise that sounds like a burglar, right? Like, hey, Johnny, could you check on that? Um, sounds like glass broke. We may have a thief in the house. Would you mind going? Here's your sippy cup. Just go take him down, right? Can you imagine that? Here's dad's gun. Go handle it, right? That's just silly. Saul dresses David in his own oversized armor. And like dressing your kids in your extra large coat, none of it fits. Listen, this battle isn't going to be won the way that Saul is expecting. 
This wasn't going to be a natural battle. Listen, with natural means. There's a supernatural aspect to all of this. There's a living God that neither Goliath nor the Philistines nor the Israelites nor Saul has taken into account. Only David sees God for who he is and Goliath thus for who he is. So look at the rest of verse 39. David said to Saul, I cannot go with these. I've not tested them. So David put them off. And then verse 40, then he took his staff in his hand and he chose five smooth stones from the brook and he put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand and he approached the Philistine. Now notice with me that David sets aside the, you could say the worldly weaponry and he bears instead the furnishings of a shepherd. He takes a staff, that would have been a shepherd's a tool of protection and correction. He takes some stones, he takes a pouch, and he takes a sling. And these are the weapons that you would use as a shepherd. These are the tools of a shepherd. So he's not going out in man's strength. There's no way against a sword, against a shield, armor bearer, against this giant of a man who's bronzed out. There's no way you're going to take him down with a little leather pouch and some stones. This is silly. There's no uh, chance. This is basically uh, a one-sided event. But it's a one-sided event because the Lord is in this. And so Goliath had no chance from the very beginning. Uh, David's not going out in man's strength as an unexpected challenger. And I'm sure Saul is sitting back kind of covering his eyes maybe like this to kind of see what is going to happen and to prepare his men to flee in case, of course, David gets cut down within the first 30 seconds. He's ready to flee and get out of there uh, with his men as David walks to the battlefield. But we know the rest of the story, don't we? You're like, yeah, we just read it. Okay, well, look at our fourth section, an unforeseen victory. Look at verse 41. It says, And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. So his shield was so large that it required an additional person to bear it who would walk out in front of him. And so it says in verse 42, When the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth. He was ruddy and handsome in appearance. I like how that little additional thing is thrown in there from our understanding of David last week in verse six, or chapter 16. Well, it says that the Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? The phrase of a dog was very, uh, just a huge put down. It was not just like, am I just a little puppy? It means like, am I a dog? Are, are, you, are you coming at me with sticks? This is, a, this is saying like, the, the worst derogatory comment he could give. And so he says, it says, the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Goliath is offended that such an unimpressive, young, red-faced fry guy is going to come out to him on the battlefield. And I'm sure the Hebrew would be translated in verse 43 this way. If we were to translate it, maybe it would translate this way. Are you kidding me? you got to be kidding me. Who's this kid? Right? David's like this compared to this giant. And so he begins to call out upon Dagon, the fish god. He begins to cry out to Ashtoreth, the false goddess of the Philistines, and begins to curse David by his gods. He begins to curse the name of God by his own false gods. And notice what he says next, verse 44. Come to me, I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. This guy is just full of himself, arrogant. He's continuing to have confidence in his own strength. And David responds in kind. 
David doesn't say like, hey, you know, sir, I'm really sorry about the issue that we've been facing. And, and if you would just take terms of surrender, like we're, we're, I'm sorry about that. You know, can we, can we agree to disagree on this one? You know, is there any way we can maybe break some bread together? No, he doesn't do that. He comes out and says the exact same thing. Well, you come to me with a sword and a spear and a javelin, but I come to you with stones and a sling. No, he says, I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day... Not I will, de- I will defeat you. The Lord will deliver you into my hand. And I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth. Why? That all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear. For the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand. See, church, David's entire motivation is not for him to be famous, but for God's name to be famous. That all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Not that all the earth would know who David is. It was to point the world to the renown of God. It was to point also the assembly of Israel to God's salvific work and that his work is done in a way we would never expect. And so we know what happens. Look at verse 48 and 49. So the Philistine comes up, he's on the battlefield, maybe sword drawn, ready to go. David runs quickly to the battle line and David put his hand in his bag and he takes out the Chick-fil-A breakfast. No, what does he do? He takes out the stone and he slings it first time and strikes the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. Wow. See, this battle was over before it ever began. You might wonder like, wow, he's a good shot. Well, think about it. David surely had many years of target practice as a shepherd in the middle of the wilderness protecting his sheep. Uh, He had his stones. He had his sling. He had perfect aim. And many people thought, wow, Goliath is so big, I can't beat him. But David thought, Goliath is so big, I can't miss him. (laughs) Talk talk about easy target. This is great. And and so in hand-to-hand combat, certainly Goliath is is, is um, invincible. But David defeats Goliath using a tactic that made him far superior in this contest. One blow and it crushed the head of the enemy. Look at verse 50. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling, with a stone, with, the, with the, the marks of a shepherd. He struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine, took his own sword. You can kind of see this little kid kind of pulling, pulling this huge sword out, you know, barely able to hold it. And he killed him and cut off his head with it. Uh, I love this, that David used his, own, his enemy's own weapon against him. So the Philistines realize, uh-oh, <laughs> now what? Our champion is dead. And so they begin to flee. They don't honor the agreement that they had made before Um, Goliath came out. The agreement was the losing side surrenders. Well, they're not surrendering, they're fleeing. And so it says that the men of Israel, the men of Judah began to hunt them down and defeat them. In the meantime, David takes Goliath's armor and puts it in his own tent. I don't know why, but maybe to keep it as a personal trophy, right? He can kind of put it on his kid's head. You know, hey, try this one on, Johnny. Puts it on, I don't know. But uh, he carries the head of Goliath to Jerusalem. And then something odd happens. Maybe you caught it when we read it in verse 55. Something odd happens. It says that, um, that as soon as Saul saw David go out, he said to Abner, his commander, hey, Abner, whose son is this? And Abner said, well, I don't know. 
And so he says, well, find out who it is. Verse 57, it says, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. Yep, this is the right guy. And Saul said to him, whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I'm the son of your servant, Jesse, the Bethlehemite. Now, on first glance, what's happening here? Uh, is Saul experiencing dementia? Uh, is the Bible full of errors? Well, I thought back in chapter 16 that Saul knew who David was, and David had served in his court as an armor bearer and a mandolin player. So what's going on here? Well, most scholars believe that there have been a few years between chapter 16 and chapter 17, and David has grown up a bit. So he, you notice as we started this, he is no longer the armor bearer, but he's going back and forth from Saul's palace to his father Jesse's house. And so Saul, remember, has said, hey, I'm going to give my daughter to the person who does this, and I'm going to forgive the father's debts. So whoever's the father is going to have all of his debts forgiven. So immediately he goes, who's dad? Who's your dad? <laughs> I need to know who that is because I have a lot of debt to pay back now. Uh, and the king, I would also add, is not responsible for, for every single one of his employees' family members' names. He doesn't know everyone's dad's name in his palace. And so he knows who David is. He doesn't know who uh, David's father is. So a great unforeseen victory by an unexpected savior representing an unprepared people by defeating an impossible foe. When we look at the story of David and Goliath, perhaps we've been looking at it all wrong. And so first I want to apply this passage of scripture before we close down and take communion together. Okay, three ways we're going to do this. And we're going to dive into this in our community groups that kick off this week a little bit more in depth in some of this application. But number one, I want you to jot these down. Number one, the past work of God, the past work of God can give us perspective on his present and future work. Notice in verse 37, David's absolute surrender, or I'm sorry, assurance of what the Lord can do, um, that assurance flowed from a place of experiencing what God had already been faithful to do. Does that make sense? He says, the Lord who used to, in the past, delivered me from the paw of the lion, the paw of the bear, will be faithful to deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. What a joy to know that I can, I can rest in the fact that God has been, past tense, faithful and that he doesn't change. So I relied on his grace yesterday. Anybody else here relied on the grace of God yesterday? I needed it. I kind of maxed it out. I don't know about you. I maxed his grace out. I can just say that. I had a full max of his grace. Thank you, Lord, for that. And yet today the scripture says his mercies are new every morning. So today he was faithful to bestow his grace in my life yesterday. He's faithful again today to be graceful. We can rely on his faithfulness in the past and today and tomorrow. Davis said this, faith is sustained in the present and for the present as it remembers Yahweh's provision in the past. So God will be faithful to his people and his word is proven. The scripture says that his word is tried and true. It's proven. The word of the Lord is proven. And we learned those concepts when we studied the book of Habakkuk this past year. If you missed that study, go back on our website. All of our teaching series are on our website uh, or our podcast, Calvary Shoreline. You can look that up where you get your podcast. So go back and listen to that whole series through the book of Habakkuk. But it's something that David understood. It took his dangerous experiences alone in the wilderness, fighting against bears and against lions. Talk about terrifying. Defending his sheep. For David to fully understand, God will deliver me in the future. 
He's been faithful in the past. Now, how many of us, you and I, have what I call spiritual memory loss? SML. We suffer from this. Maybe I'm the only one. But we forget what God has done in the past and we think, nope, the Lord's not going to do it this time. He's not going to be faithful. Lord, I know that your track record is utterly perfect. But Lord, it's the 11th hour and I don't know how you're going to come through. And a lot of us, even today, have experienced, or maybe even now, you are experiencing great sorrow, great trouble, great calamity, great difficulty. But listen, you're not the worse for it. You're actually wiser for it. His faithfulness in the past gives us encouragement and faith in the present and the future. Not only that, number two, this is a thing I want you to write down, application. Number two, the purpose of our lives is to extend the glory and the renown of God. David's entire motivation to end Goliath was because he was defying the name of God. David wanted the people of God to see that God supernaturally saves. And he wanted the nations to know who God was because God alone is glorious. And that meant even being willing to stand his ground if necessary. Now sometimes I wonder, are we today... You could say in evangelical Christianity, are we willing to, as a community, risk even our own necks to defend or uphold the glory of God? Are we willing to do that? When we hear blasphemy in the workplace, do we confront it? Or do we just kind of, kind of ignore it? When we hear false platitudes that misrepresent God, oh, I'm reading this great book. Yeah, it says that this is who God is. And you're like, no, that's totally wrong. Are we just polite and we're just nice so we just grin and avoid? You see, sometimes I fear that Christians believe in justification by niceness or niceness evangelism. Uh, so, like, as long as I'm a nice guy, then people will want to know Jesus. Now, now listen, it may be true that a kind demeanor uh, will be attractive to someone who misunderstands Christianity. That, that can certainly be true. But listen, let's not be fooled into thinking that everything God says to us is nice. God's just a nice, bearded, you know, sky fairy who tells us what we want to hear. A lot of us are misunderstanding that. Uh, no, it's more important that we extend the truth of God to all peoples than just be nice, kind people. So our cowardice... And our politeness may be the very catalyst that sends a lost person to hell. Whose honor is at stake, I wonder? Whose honor? Is it our honor? If it's our honor, then stay silent. But if it's God's honor, then we need to have the boldness to speak up. We're here to extend the glory of God, to enjoy his grace, to extend his glory. And David won't put up with this blaspheme, uh, blasphemy. He confronts it. Finally, number three, I want you to write this down. The battle is the Lord's. Man, what an encouragement. The battle is the Lord's. Certainly, Saul didn't believe that God could save by any other means than sword or spear. And when I look around at us, we're in unprepared infantry, and I look around and go, man, I'm glad the battle doesn't belong to us. Aren't you? I am so glad the battle doesn't belong to my natural means. Now, so often on the screen, we look at that, and we, we give a hearty theological amen. Yeah, the battle belongs to the Lord. Yes, We theologically believe that, but functionally, we live as though that's not true, that we are the ones who must win the battle. And listen, we need to trust that God will win the battle. But on the flip side, that doesn't mean that we just sit back and do nothing. So someone says, does God do it or do I do it? The answer is yes. (laughs) Yes. We seek God. We give him glory. 
Uh, we trust and wait for his leading, and then we arm ourselves and run into the battle towards the enemy and trust that the battle belongs to the Lord. Spurgeon said it this way. He said, the lazy bones of our Orthodox churches cry, well, God will do his own work. And then they look out the softest pillow they can find and put it under their heads. God will do the work. I'm just going to sit back and let go and let God. No, we're to, we're to trust that God will do the work and he's going to include us. He's going to use us for his glory. Do you know that there are nations, people groups today that have never heard the name of Christ Christ has not been named among some people groups. And could it be that from our own fellowship, some would hear that call and heed that call and be willing to trade the comforts of the American dream to go to the ends of the earth, to extend his glory and say, the battle belongs to the Lord. And we must be willing to follow him and trust him. Now as we close, I want to invite our worship team forward. We're going to take communion in a few moments. And our worship team is going to close us in song. So go ahead and close your Bibles and get settled. I don't want this to be a distracting time. Uh, we're going to distribute the elements in a moment, and we want to encourage everyone who's a follower of Christ to take the two cups as they're distributed out and just hold on to them until we receive them together as a community. Uh, listen, I mentioned it earlier. If you're not a Christ follower, we want you to abstain and not eat or drink judgment on yourself. This is not a religious dead ceremony. This is a sacrament that the church partakes in to remind us of the gospel. I don't know about you, I need to be reminded of the gospel every day, every moment of the day. Why? Because I forget. Even as we think of narratives like the one we've looked at today, we need to be reminded of the gospel, of who Christ is and who we are. Listen, church, we aren't David. <laughs> Jesus is the true and better David. Consider this for a moment. An army that's ill-equipped stands hopeless and helpless against an impossible foe. We have in our federal head, our representative, an unlikely savior who was sent to the battleground by his father after coming to his brothers who did not receive him. This savior fought not with the worldly weapons we would expect, but fought a battle where the victory was assured even before it began. You see, you and I aren't David. We're more like Goliath. In his blog, Chad Bird said this on the screen. The Philistine behemoth of a man who stood on the battlefield is more like we are than we care to admit. He is, in fact, the incarnation of everything that's wrong with us. We are born enemies of God. We are full of ourselves. We not only have a giant problem, we are a giant problem. We defy God. We exalt ourselves. It's all about me, a navel gazer, an ego addict. This is who we are as sinners. We're foes of heaven, giant sinners. He goes on to say this. Goliath needs one thing. He needs to be killed. And that's what our David does. Our David, the new and second David, marches onto the battlefield to slay us. We need to die before we can live. There is no other way, but Christ, the son of David and David's Lord does not sling a rock into our big heads. He has a liquid weapon. He holds us under the water of baptism. And in that wet death, we are joined to a bloody death, David's own. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death, Romans 6, 3. 
We die, but we die with him. We are drowned, but we are crucified with him. David wraps his arms around us Goliaths and plunges into the watery grave with us. Together we die and together we rise. See, Christ has defeated the impossible foe, sin, and the flesh and our final enemy, death, by dying in our place. Jesus rose from the dead triumphantly and he's crushed the head of the serpent in a singular and decisive death blow. And Jesus used Satan's own weapon, the cross, against him. Now all who trust in their representative have been set free from the foe and they've received the victory. This morning as we consider the cross of Jesus Christ, we're gonna sing these words and I I wanna just show you what we're about to sing on the screen. This is what Christ has done for us. It says, oh, to see my name written in the wounds, for through your suffering I am free. Death is crushed to death. Life is mine to live, won through your selfless love. This, the power of the cross. Christ became sin for us. He took the blame, he bore the wrath, and we, we stand forgiven at the cross. We're gonna celebrate that together as we sing and as we consider the price that Jesus paid on our behalf. So stay seated, we'll pass out the elements in just a moment, hold on to those, and we'll instruct you in a moment as we partake. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Lakewood Ranch YMCA. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at calvaryshoreline.com. God bless you.